Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Good morning, church. I'm excited to be with you guys this morning. Um, When Ryan asked me to teach on the Psalm of Penitence, I was really excited because prior to this, months ago, um, I had been reading the Psalms and Psalm 51 was something the Lord was really speaking to me. So I find it no coincidence that this is the the place that we're at as a church. So we're going to be continuing on in our series, What Do We Do When Everything Is Terrible? Looking how the Old Testament can teach us and um, what what to do in times of trouble. So two weeks ago, we heard from Ryan. He gave us this kind of beautiful overview picture of the character of God, his sovereignty and his mercy and his uh, unrelenting steadfast commitment to being with us as we go through struggles. And as we wrestle through these times, we hold on to that truth, moving through suffering. And last week, Pastor Xavier, he walked us through lament and gave us permission really to lament to actually feel what we're going through versus, you know, bypassing our feelings or avoiding them to get to the other side, which brings comfort. And through this lament process, we become people who are fully alive, fully feeling, and we can be moved into action. So this week, we're going to talk about one of those actions um, in in the form of uh, penitence or asking confession and repentance. So we're going to look at David in Psalm 51, and we're going to look at the story of Ezra, and we're going to figure out what it looks like to be people that are posturing ourselves as daily confessors versus people that are running away to avoid what we're feeling. Um, Let's just start with a, a prayer. Jesus, would you come and be with us at homes and hear? Would the words be words that we need to hear that bring us closer to your throne? We're so grateful for you, God. Thank you, Lord. Thanks for your words today. Amen. So I want to give us a big overview of kind of the reason why we're doing all of this. And I, and I find it best from um, a, a guy called Dr. Larry Crabb. He's a Christian author and psychologist and teacher, and he teaches a lot about sport, spiritual formation. So we're going to take a look at his process of what he says in spiritual formation. So we're looking at the top brokenness, right, leads to repentance, which leads to abandonment, abandoning of the thing um, that we're holding tight to that's not the Lord, leads to confidence leading to release, release into the spirit of God. And I like this big picture because it helps us when we're in the muck and the mire. So uh, we're going to be looking today at these verses in chunks, and we're going to be looking at what we're actually repenting of, why we're doing it, what's at stake if we don't, and what's on the other side of that. So let's let's go through um, this. We're going to look at personal repentance and communal repentance. There goes our lovely train. All right, so Psalm 51. We're talking about David's response to when he is confronted with his sin. So I'm going to go through it pretty quickly because I think that we are pretty familiar with it, right? So David's king over Israel. Everything's going pretty good. They're in a time of war. And for some reason, he's on top of his roof walking around. He looks down at another place and he sees a woman bathing. And we know that she's very beautiful. So he sends his people over to be like, who is this lovely lady? And so then he comes back with the report and he says her name is Bathsheba. She's married to 
to one of your soldiers, and his name is Uriah. So we know that David sends his people back over and has her come to his house, and he sleeps with her. So there's a lot of scholarly debate whether it was an affair, when it was, um, you know, both mutual, or whether it was rape. We're not sure. The end result is that she ends up pregnant, and David starts to panic. So Uriah comes back from war, and he doesn't go home to his wife. He comes back to the king to pay him honor, and David's like, you did a great job. You should go home. And he's like, no way. I'm not going home. Like, you're here, and I need to protect you. So he spends the night there. When David finds out he does that, um, he says, you know what, Uriah? You're such a good guy. You should come eat and drink with us tonight. So he says, okay. So he goes, and he gets so drunk that he can't go home to his wife. He stays in the servant's quarters. So David finds out he does this again, so he can't go home and impregnate his wife. Fake impregnation. And so he sends him to the front lines of the war where he's killed. And the Lord sends Nathan. Ain't nobody want to be Nathan in this situation. He sends his best friend over to him. And Nathan tells him this story. He says, look, King David, we got two people. We got a rich man. We got a poor man. We got a rich man who's got a lot of sheep, cattle, and all sorts of stuff. We got a poor man who has one little baby lamb. And he loves that lamb. He loves that lamb so much he eats dinner with it. And it's a part of the family. And sometimes they cuddle at night. And there was a traveler that came through the town one day. And the rich man, instead of taking one of his numerous animals, he takes the poor man's one little baby lamb and he kills it and he feeds it to the traveler. And Daniel at this point is ticked. He is like, that guy deserves to die. Um, but before he dies, he needs to pay him back four times. So you know what he owes this man for taking this. And Nathan turns to him and says, you are that man. And there's so much more to the story, so go read that in 2 Samuel. But here is uh, David's response to finding out this information. Have mercy on me, O God. Verse 1, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, and cleanse me from all of my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. By using the word transgression, originally word pasha, he's saying, I literally rebelled against you, God. And the word he uses for iniquity, originally aon, which means he understands that there's a punishment for what he's done, and that punishment is death. David knew it. He admitted his sin, finally. He knew he was evil. He knew what he did, and he admitted it to God, and he also admitted it to Nathan. So there's this theme running through the Old Testament where God is creating standards and laws and rules and commandments in order to protect his people and set them apart and protect their Jewish worldview or their philosophy of life. And God says over and over, you are a people who are to be set apart. And he describes the different ways his people should be like that. He gives this kind of ideal picture even from the beginning of Genesis um, and Adam and Eve. And we've been continuing to screw it up ever since then, um, but he is still faithful to stay with us. So as we see, part of David's sin is this, is he's allowing the pressures of his culture um, to decide what's right and wrong and to influence his actions in this. He's using his place of privilege to honor his own views over God's desires, God's moral code. 
So what was that culture? The culture there in the ancient Israelite culture was one where women were largely confined to roles in the home. Um, it was a little bit better in the Jewish culture, but pretty poor in the um, outside the Jewish culture, where there was definitely still a hierarchy of value when it came to gender for women being exploited and used for a number of things. So uh, uh, clearly very different than the story we get from God about the dignity of Adam and Eve, specifically Eve when she was created in the image of God, right? We see a beautiful redemption by God throughout scripture where he goes against cultural norms and gives women a dignity and a voice and raises them up for this painful patriarchy, which is a totally different topic for another story. But we see, I am struck, right, by Bathsheba and the way she's treated by someone in power and authority, treated by in the line with the norms of society and not in line with God's moral code. His design for marriage, for sex, for the sanctity of human life. And David has to mourn that sin that he personally chooses. We, just like him, are constantly choosing whatever it is that we desire, our own self-protected ways over the things that God desires. And it's helpful to know where these influences came from. How did we get here? I was listening to the 1980s hit by Talking, um, talking Heads. Uh, yeah, you guys are too young to understand that song. But anyways, the realization should really impact us when we figure out how we got here. And it wrecks David. Let's read together. Verse 4, against you, only you, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. So let's unpack it. There's a lot going on here. What does he mean by sinning against God himself? I think in order to understand that, we have to understand who we are in relation to our creator. Um, because most of the time it just seems like I'm doing things to hurt my own body or I'm doing things to hurt other people. How is this connected to the Lord? So from our conception, right, the Bible teaches us there are uh, something that's true of every single human being, no matter what your DNA is, no matter what your molecular makeup, no matter what you look like, talk like, think like, developmentally turn out to be, there's one thing that's the same is that we are all marked with a very good stamp of approval because we are created by God to bear his image. And that and that alone gives us our core identity. And he teaches us that wisdom in that secret place. I love that. He's already speaking the truth about our identity from there. He's threading it into the very fabric of ourselves and our souls from conception. And because these things are true, he's the only one that has authority to hold us to a moral and ethical standard. And we can trust what he says to do because he's the only one that can hold that authorship. He's the only one worthy because he's the only one who never changes. He's the same in Genesis, the same when he redeems David. He's the same when he sends his son to take on the sins of the world. And he's the same in this crap show of 2020 that we're living in right now. We are image bearers of the king, the holy creator, we are a part of him and he is in us. So every time we go against his moral and ethical code, it's a sin against himself because he made it and he told us to follow it. And every time from birth, we're fighting this. 
That's what David says. Even from birth, we're fighting this. He says it in quite a dramatic way, but um, we want to feel and desire and we want to take those feelings and desires and believe that that's what gives us our right and our wrong. The problem is our feelings and our desires change all the time. They're not consistent. So think about a sin like gluttony. Let's break it down. What does it actually look like? Gluttony um, seems like it's just a sin against myself, right? I'm only hurting my own body by eating this donut and the other donuts. But my body was made with a purpose, right? Our bodies and our souls, our matter and our spirit, they're together. They form an integrated unity. We as human beings are an embodied soul created by God. So they're not separate. But when I eat this thing or whatever I'm doing, fries or something like that, I'm saying that either I know better than God what I need, or I choose to do this thing because I'm escaping feeling a certain way, or worse, I don't really care that I'm going against God. I'm going to do it my own way anyways. What I desire right now is to pound this cake, right? Um, not, uh, and it makes us feel good. That's why we do it, right? It's not, uh, <laughs> um, and if it feels good, then it's good for me. So let's think about it against someone else. Let's say uh, the way that I treat my husband like crap all the time. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal. It's really just against Steve. But really, my actions are saying something about how I feel about his dignity. And it's, about, it's saying something about who I want to honor myself and who I want to disrespect Steve, which is in direct opposition to the dignity that he deserves as an image bearer of God. But my wake makes me feel better. Surely I was sinful at birth, surely from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. The first time I read this, I was floored. I was like, you desire faithfulness in the womb? Kind of a, a lot to ask of an infant. Um, but, you know, faithfulness, what does that look like? Being loyally constant, especially in the moments when we go against, especially in the moments when we go against our own way, against the Lord's desire. So you taught me wisdom wisdom in that secret place. I think about my kids, you know, I, I, I really do want them to obey me at all times. You know, it's not a good idea. I got an eight, a six, and a two-year-old. You know, Clem, it's not a good idea to put one leg on one skateboard, one leg on the other skateboard, and throw a basketball up in the air and see how long you can go down the street. It's just not a great plan. Um, you know, Pax, he, he didn't start talking until he was like two, so he's saying why a lot. It's very cute, but he goes, a hockle, which is a popsicle, and I'll be like, no, Nobody. Why? Is how he says it. So he says, why? And I'm like, well, it's 8.30 in the morning, so we're not going to eat a popsicle in the morning. Why? Just trust me, dude. Why? It's not good for you to eat this popsicle. You know, so it's not a good idea to paint your nails on my couch without a towel down. You know why? Because I've been there. I want you to obey me and believe me because I've been there. I was the one who did hair dye on my mom's white carpet after she told me to stay in the bathroom. I was the one that spilled the nail polish all over the couch when she told me to put something down. And I said, I got it, mom. And I think God's saying the same thing to us. Listen, I know better than you. And I expect obedience, not because I'm mean or I want to control you, but because I've been there and I know what this is going to do to you. I've lived through this. I know what the consequence will be to your heart if you choose this way. And he's giving us wisdom to choose that even from birth. 
His opinion is the only one that matters, the only judgment that's final upon our hearts and lives. And yet we live like our desires are the only ones that matter. We don't live as people with an audience of one. We will do anything and everyone, everything, do everything, everything to please ourselves and others at great cost to our hearts. David knows the weight of what he did. He knows that he deserves death. So do we feel the weight of our sin? Do we feel and grieve the weight of our sin? Can we grasp the unfailing love and the great compassion that David's talking about enough to actually lay down our lives and be disciples through these hard times? Or are we going to be people that during these times we agree with by our actions what the culture is determining who and what has value and worth? And so we pursue our own desires because they make us feel good. They don't make us feel anxious or in a place of lament. They give us that okay feeling in the moment. And if so, then we're just aligning our allegiance with our own selves. And we're following the idolatry of safety because we don't actually believe that his way actually leads to freedom for us, to real authentic hope and love. We think it's limiting our choices. We think it's limiting our rights, limiting our desires. Now our sin might not be murder or rape, but it's choosing not to follow God's sexual ethic just like David, choosing to flirt with someone who's not my spouse, choosing to gawk at images on the internet, even if they're fleeting images coming through in an advertisement, they're watching sex scenes on our TV shows over and over again because they make us feel good. It's using our bodies for pleasures that he never intended. It's making sure that best picture of us is out in social media because our hearts cannot rest until we get those approval likes. It's talking down to people and treating people that we don't agree with their lifestyle choices with disdain. It's speaking horribly about people on social media and that's happening on all sides. It's viewing people of lower economic standards as somehow less deserving of resources because we've convinced ourselves we've worked hard and earned the ones that we have. Or finding reasons in our hearts to justify the killing of black men and women in our country because maybe we don't have the whole story as this, there's a detail of the story we're missing that would justify that kind of end. I mean, if you know me even a little bit, you know I'm slightly a passionate person. Because I'm passionate, I have to delete things on the internet all the time. The things I'm saying at the time, I not only want to be right, but I want to shame you, right, person, into changing. I want to look right, and I want you to look foolish. And I claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, the God of justice. Guys, I don't think I'm alone. I have seen some things that people are writing about my friends, about my spouse, about our pastor on the internet. We got to do better. These are people who are claiming to be disciples of Jesus. You know what disciples of Jesus do? We lay down our lives for the cross. We laid on our lives for his reign. We mourn. We put to death. We, we kill our selfish desires because we know that his way is the only way to justice, freedom, and a whole self. And it definitely doesn't look like that crap we're spewing all over the internet at each other. We have to feel the betrayal against God or we'll never change. So what do we do, right? 
All right, let's look at the story of Ezra for a minute. Ezra is a great teacher and a priest, and he's sent by King Artaxerxes to take charge of the temple and the civil affairs in Judah at the time. So he goes down to Jerusalem, and he's teaching a lot, and he's figuring stuff out. And after a couple months of being there, he uh, hears that the people are doing the exact opposite of what God told them to not the exact opposite of what God told them to do. So they're intermarrying with other people of other religions and cultures. So here we're not talking about race. Everyone pretty much looked the same and understood the same language. We're talking about Jews marrying non-Jews. Uh, people who had different religions and different worldviews were, you know, coming together. Um, and God said specifically not to do that. And not only are the people doing it, but the rulers um, are doing it and the leaders. And here's Ezra's reaction. I got to take some water because it is dramatic. Ezra 9.3, when I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn, and I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to God, my Lord, and I prayed, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, your guilt has been great. Doesn't it sound like he's mourning the death of something? Ezra knew it was at stake. What happens is now there's no single truth in the community. There's a tolerance that all ways are permissible. All gods are equally valued, and the nation of Israel has lost its distinctive character as people devoted to Yahweh. Sound familiar? And we follow suit. So we follow suit like Ezra did. We follow suit like David did. And we start naming the sin. We place ourselves where we should have been the whole time at the feet of the cross under God's authority. And we ask for cleanliness. Listen to what David asked for. Verse seven, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide my face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Guys, after we lament and see our brokenness, we can repent. And the Bible says we do that by putting to death our sinful nature. As we mature as Christians, we must die to the flesh or die to the desires to follow our own moral code, our own feelings. And we have to do that repeatedly, daily, and as Dr. Larry Crabb likes to say, until we are home. At different times in our lives, God will lead us through these dark nights of the soul, seasons, and we're going to have to die. But we die to things to disconnect us from what is bad in order to connect us from what is good. It's not punishment for what we did. It's a purification process. I once was in Romania. I watched them uh, take their goat's milk from the actual goat. They would boil it up and they would scrape off the impurities and then drink the milk. That's the process we're in here when we're in these dark times. It's a boiling and getting rid of things. Verse 10, create in me a pure heart, O God, and steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. The spirit of God in us does this work. He's the one that's creating the purity, renewing the spirit, keeping us close, restoring our joy, and giving us a willing spirit. We can't do it on our own. 
But what we can do is develop a daily ritual of prayer, of repentance. <laughs> Sorry, there's something there that just fell. We can do is a daily ritual of repentance. We're going to skip to verse 16. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. So what does that look like to do personally? Okay, so every morning is, is rough in our house, but the other day I woke up at 6.30 to a very sweet eight-year-old Sola in my ear saying, Mom, there's a lot of applesauce that was spilled on the floor by Clement. And she's purposely trying to be kind, so I know something bad happened. Well, the kids tried to mop up. I don't know what happened with the applesauce, but it was everywhere. The kids were kind. They tried to mop it up with the mop that's literally for dusting, and then they put that back away. So there's like a pool. It was real bad. Steve kindly tried to get up and clean it up, but it literally just looks like a slimy, and he missed like a million spots. You know what I'm talking about. Um, so I tried to ignore it. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to put my makeup on, get ready for work. It's going to be okay. Well, everyone's kind of hustling about and Clem's in my ear and Steve's sitting in the doorway and Sola comes to me with this dish that's broken now. And I'm like, everyone out. I scream at my family and I am a mess. And this happens really frequently. These are not dark night of the soul moments. These are just ordinary struggles of anger and irritation, and I become out of control. All I want is one calm morning. But the truth is, I really don't even care about the spill. I am, I am interested in how it happened, um, but I feel out of control. And the fear underneath that is that uh, I don't have what it takes to be a good mom. My kids are only going to remember the times that I screamed at them. Or I don't have what it takes to be a working mom, nurse practitioner, and a mom, and be good at both because I don't have the capacity. All these things are small moments, and they're exposing my idolatry of ease, my false hope and comfort and convenience. These are the ones that actually re reveal where my loyalties lie, where my reliance lies. These are the daily constant instances in our lives that are moments for sanctification. It doesn't always look like a huge confession. These are my broken spirit moments, my contrite heart moments, right? When life goes good, we look good. Things are going smoothly. Kids are doing well. No one's spilling applesauce all over the place, and I'm happy. I must be doing things right, but I can be completely disconnected to the Father because if one thing goes wrong, there I am, I'm shattered. In her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, Tish Harrison Warren says this, good people don't need Jesus. He came for the lost. He came for the broken. He comes to make us whole, not people who break at the smallest things. She says, repentance is not usually a moment wrought in high drama. It's the steady drumbeat of a life in Christ, a day in Christ. I love that. Paul talks a lot in the New Testament about being content, and I, we can't will ourselves into contentment, right? We, can only, we can't be content in all circumstances, but we can practice meeting Christ in those small move, the moments of anger and frustration and grief. And in those small ways, in those small moments, we also get to encounter the death and resurrection of Jesus that's leading us to restoration. Get in the habit of admitting our sin, being aware of it, a constant awareness of it, and it gets easier every time. Why is that? Repenting of our sin releases us just a little bit from the tight grip we have of the lie that says we hold all our worth in what we do, 
all our successes in how we act and our own redemption in those successes. And every time we realize the lie, it releases that grip and we can look to God instead of ourselves. And it's only when we are there at our deepest place that God meets and he meets us with joy, his perfect heart, his willing spirit, like David's talking about, we can be people who lead others into that space as well. So let's go to verse 13. David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are my God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Repentance is more than just something that goes on in our personal lives. We are more than just individuals. We're part of a world that's longing to be redeemed. We're part of the Christian family as a whole. And our sin has an impact on our personal lives, but also has an impact on the world at large. But so does our confession, right? May it please Zion, verse 18, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifice of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will offer, be offered at your altar. His confessions were personal, but David knows that they affect the whole nation. So he's now asking God to prosper the whole nation for his glory. So we now know more than ever that Christians and their actions have an impact on the world at large. And that impact right now doesn't look very good. We'll just, we'll just go with that word. Um, and when Ezra is confessing, it isn't of his own personal sin. He's confessing his sin on behalf of the nation. He didn't do the intermarrying that God said not to do, but he feels so deeply connected to the community, he adds himself to this communal confession. He's overcome with the shame and the sense of how the nation has disgraced God. You know, a couple months ago, the elder team put out a statement repenting of the ways that we've been a part of continual racial injustice within the church and within this nation. So there's parts of that that we specifically have a part in confessing. But we also recognize that we are part of a larger collection, collective body as well. I just finished reading a really well-written, well-researched academic book about the history of racism within the church, the American church, called The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. And the most recent examples of racism in the American church are not ones from the days of slavery, from the Jim Crow era, or even from the civil rights movement. They're instances from our own generation. And because those instances exist from the beginning of our country till now, we know that the American church, mainly the white American church at large, is also complicit. And remember, it's good to know how we got here. It's good to know what we were influenced by, right? 400 years ago, America was created and with it came the lie that people who have darker skin than white skinned are inferior and somehow a departure from the norm. And therefore, they have less value and worth. And they showed that by not allowing people to have freedom of choice, freedom of, of voice, to experience education or mercy or justice or any of those things. And systems were created and put in order to continue to keep them in that place of oppression. They even created a constitution where it said all men are free, but really they just meant white men, not even women. 
The past has shaped the culture that we are in now, and it's fed us subliminal messages about the other our entire lives. And we believe them, whether we want to or know that they're there. And the white church has stayed silent or passive for hundreds of years, while our black and brown brothers in their churches are lamenting and crying out to the Lord and grieving and seeking the Lord for justice. Sure, there's been a few here and there that have joined that path, but it's way, way, way too few. When God looks at his kingdom, right, he sees every person with every different color and ethnicity and language and tongue, and he sees a beautiful multitude of color of people that are all image bearers of Christ, but also hold their distinct ethnicities and culture expressions and their backgrounds. And yet in America, Sunday is still the most segregated day in the nation. And when we look at our friend groups, they look mostly all like us. Will we be people like David that allowed the cultural and systemic lies to remain in place? A lie that be because I'm not an outspoken racist, then I don't have to evaluate the messages that I've been hearing all these years about people of color. Or the lie that because I didn't commit the acts of slavery and uh, lynching that I have no part in helping reconcile. These messages will and do influence who we give our value and worth to. There's no us in them. There's just all people, a family of people who all need the same repentance. Ezra knew it. Ezra didn't do the intermarrying, but ho, 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 he was the first one to lead the cause towards restoration. And we are a community of believers. The impact the white church has had on the gospel of Jesus Christ in the area of racial reconciliation is one of furthering lies and protecting itself. And it's still with us. It's on us. That's why we as a church are moving in that direction. Because staying silent or passive is saying we align with the dominant culture to believe that we operate, the way we operate now is right, secure, safe, and going to give us joy and righteousness. So we join David and Ezra and the ancient Israelites and we lift our arms up and we say, God, we are a wicked generation in need of you. And you know what Ezra's people did when, when they saw him doing this? They, they were convicted and they joined him. They joined him in lamenting. They joined him in confessing. We need to realize the weight of the past and how it's affected us. And we need to verbally confess our sins together. Confessing in a communal way reminds us that failure in the Christian life is the norm. We all worship from the same unworthy place. We're not defined by that even if it's true, but by Christ who does the work in us. So if you're in a, a situation where you're faced with thinking about issues of race and you want to run, stay. And if you want to self-protect, let's think about it. Don't use the opportunity to now protect yourself by saying, well, I have black friends, so I can't be racist. Or I have a black family member, so I'm definitely not racist because I love them. Or I did this for this organization. Or look how great we are at setting up this food bank. And um, well, I do medical missions every year. I gave this much of my money to the poor. I wonder if that's what David's talking about when he says, you do not take pleasure in these burnt offerings. We have to take assessments of our soul there are tons of ways where we are motivated to do good things, and a lot of them are Christ-like motivations, but we got to assess them. 
God gives us a command to uh, care for the oppressed. Why? The uh, oppression is systemic, right? It's a, it's a prolonged, unjust treatment of people who can't, by themselves, get out of what's the situation they've been put in. They can't eliminate the burden. They can maybe cope with it, but they can't be free of it. And God's command is for us to break the chains of the oppressed, set them free because it's in complete opposition again to his design and longing for our lives as free image bearers. God gives us the compassion to do this work, a compassion that moves people in oppression into healing and redemption. But it's also really good for us if we're not in a place of oppression because we are changed through relationship. So we gotta think, do we volunteer? because we have pity on people, because pity is just gonna give a handout and leave you looking like the savior. Are we people that serve and think that we're the only ones in this relationship who have something of value to offer to it? Or do we think that other person actually could add something to my life? Or do we have a compassion that's moved by the dignity of others, the dignity they deserve, by being outraged at the injustice that has befallen them. We offer these sacrifice lambs, these volunteer experiences, these mission trips, as if they check a box that reminds us that we're good enough or somehow we can impress God with them and feel proud of ourselves. God despises those, David says. So let us sacrifice our broken and contrite heart that God will not despise. We're so adverse to being broken, right? Like we, we think because we're broken, we're gonna be destroyed. But guess what? We expand. And I know this from experience, that looking further into the issue of racial um, injustice and my part in it has actually led me into the throne room of God, into the presence of God, and away from my evil God of self because he is a God of justice, And it's only from that humble place, filled with God's compassion, not my own for people, that we can change the narrative of the impact that our church has on this world and the next generation. So as we learn about these things, I want to challenge us to be people that will practice repentance to others, to make ourselves known to someone who will represent Christ to us. Can we be a community that's so uh, mature in Christ and what he's done in us that if someone comes to us and tells us of their sin or the struggle that they're going through, we don't refer them to a counselor or um, tell them that they're actually really good to just to make them feel better, try to fix them, give them a book to read. All those things are good, but are we people that are speaking powerfully about how the spirit is moving in their life to root out these lies? Because we've experienced that as well. Right now, the only place that I see most of confession happening in our community is in the counselor's office. Well, we need people to help us put to death these things in our lives, not just work through them and figure them out. And I'm not knocking counseling. I love counseling. If you know me, my girl, Debbie, man, she's the best. She's helped me through so much. But the most times in my life when I feel the most release and understanding is when I'm hanging out with my two best friends. There's a reason God told Nathan to go to David. We meet every week and most of the time it's just, just sharing kind of what's going on in our lives and other people asking questions and figuring out where the spirit's moving. 
and a couple weeks ago, I was sharing with one of my best friends, Anne, the lies that I'd been hearing all week, that I don't have a voice, that what I say isn't articulate enough to be, you know, respected. And she was saying, you know, where'd you first hear that? What happened? And the realization that I'd been hearing that lie from the devil my whole life. And what she said at the end, this is what she said. She said, what a father to care so much, to bring it up over and over and into the light and speak it over you and send the lies away because he will. She didn't try to fix me. She didn't try to tell me how wonderful I was, make me feel better. She pointed me to the purpose of the cross and God's goal for me, which would be in to be in alignment with him. So are we a community that uh, is... Can, can do this with one another, can call us each other out of the lies and into the light. And then what would the world think about us, right? <laughs> People who own their own sin without making excuses, live sacrifice lives on behalf of Christ. Larry Crabb says, death to self is the route to finding oneself. The crucifixion means the resurrection is coming, but it has to happen first. So I know this is a lot and this is heavy and it's hard. So I wanted to leave you with this image of the point, right? We talked about it in the beginning. What's the whole purpose of this? I'm going to leave you with this. So take a deep breath and I'm going to read this over us. Repentance, try to imagine, it leads into abandoning the sin and tasting the hope and joy. From there, we can find confidence of our place in God's kingdom and experience his love for us that never changes. We find our true release as we breathe in God's grace. I'm talking about a grace that shifts the soul. And then we take on a garment of praise described in Isaiah instead of that spirit of despair. So we're going to move back into a time of worship. I just encourage you to take this time to think about where you are in the process, to hear the things the Spirit's revealing to you to repent of and stay in it. And let's abandon our old ways into a whole life. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.